Amen. Woo! I, I got to tell you, I have a spring break camp up. Up. Not an over, right? Not a hang up. I got a spring break camp hang up. I am so excited about what happened last week. I, I did not know how much I needed it. You know, I, I think I, got, I am more refreshed than if I took a week on the beach, and that is the absolute truth. Kids are amazing. They, they won me over. Their smiles, their laughter. I had the hardest, hardest thing this week was the time I could find to go back in the office, and I couldn't stay because I had to come out and play with the kids. You know, what an incredible week. No wonder God said that you and I must become like little children, Right? Uh, because, man, they can teach us so much, and they just love and love and love. And, you know, it, it was a phenomenal time. Uh, John writes these words as he opens up his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. That is crazy, Right? Everything we see, God made, including, right, Canis Majoris, that huge star out there, you know, the star that if Earth was the size of a golf ball, seven quadrillion Earths would fit inside of it. That's enough golf balls to cover the state of Texas, 23 inches deep. God made that. He made all that stuff. That is insane. In him was life. In him. Now that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, and when the Bible uses name, that means his person, his character, his purposes. To all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Now understand, ever since the fall, all God wanted to do was to get close to his people. Right? That's why he descended on top of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. That's why he had them build a tabernacle and a temple where his presence could dwell. And that's why 2,000 years ago he became flesh and blood so he could move into our neighborhood and get close. We saw the glory, John writes, with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, full of grace and truth. Father God, we humbly acknowledge your presence because you are all present. And God, we ask that today, Lord, that you would come close. God, that we would be able to see you. God, to see your glory. God, that we can celebrate your name, your person, your character, and your purposes. God, what we need more than anything else in our lives is you. And God, thank you for moving into the neighborhood. Thank you for desiring to come close to us. And God, help us each to lean in to your word, to your truth today. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to respond. Because you will show up. The question is, will we? Will I? Even as I stand here. God, we love you. Do your thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Maple Grove, on a, on a Sunday, 
around 2,000 years ago, just five days before the Passover, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem for the last time. I, I, I mean, it's just mere days before his arrest, the beatings, and his crucifixion. Now, Matthew, the ex-tax collector, you know, the one who, who pushed away from the tax collecting table, the one who pushed away from his old way of living, leaving it all behind to follow Jesus, writes these words in the 21st chapter of his gospel. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And this was a fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey of a colt. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, and that means save us to the son of David. Hosanna. Now, question, does, does anything in your life right now can anything in your life use a, a little saving? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. I mean, what a scene, right? That's going down on the, the road to Jerusalem that day. I, I, I mean, it would have been so awesome to have been there, right? I mean, shouting with the crowd, praising Jesus as he rides in the donkey. It, it's just too bad that these same people, right, in a few days will be shouting something different. Crucify him. Crucify him. Today is Palm Sunday, and listen, we too have figuratively lined the parade route this morning, right, uh, to, to lift up his name and to shout his praises. And so, would you all stand up? Well, let's do some shouting, all right? I'm going to repeat a phrase, and then you repeat it back, all right? And remember, Hosanna means save us. Hosanna to the Son of David. Okay, we'll start over. That one didn't count, all right? Uh, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Amen. Y'all can uh, take your seats. I mean, what a scene, right? Thousands of people shouting and now, there's another scene that happens on, on the first Palm Sunday, and, and uh, I think it's even more powerful. And the only gospel writer who records it is a, is a, guy, named, a guy named Luke. He writes this. These first two verses won't pop on your screen. I forgot to include them. They're all shouting, having a good time. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I mean, don't you love religious people, right? You know, every party needs a pooper, right? That's why we invited you, party pooper. Remember that from, um, I think it was parent, that wedding thing was Steve, who's that Steve gray-haired dude, comedian? Steve Martin. You're right, wedding day two, that was in there, right? Every party needs a pooper, right? And they're ready, hey, you know what? Stop it, Jesus. We don't want to hear these people praising you. And Jesus says what? If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You know what? I kind of wish they kept quiet, right? Because I don't like to see a bunch of stones shouting praises to Jesus. But here comes that scene. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. The Greek word there means not just shedding tears, but his entire body is shaking with uncontrollable emotions. You ever lose a loved one? 
And you know what I'm talking about. Now, now why is Jesus so worked up? Jesus says, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. You see, Jesus weeps because he, he wants his people. He, he wants his people to see him for who he is, to believe in his name. But as John wrote, he came to his own, but his own would not receive him. And so Jesus weeps because he knows they would not receive him. And he knows what's about to happen to the nation and to the city in the near future. Before long, your enemies, that would be Rome, will build ramparts against you, 70 A.D., against your walls and encircle you and close you in on every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you, when God moved into your neighborhood. And as night fell on that Sunday, Jesus went back to Bethany, probably spending the night at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then on Monday morning, Jesus goes up and he cleanses the temple, just as he did when he began his ministry. Matthew writes, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It was written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of, of thieves or robbers. I mean, Jesus is upset. Why? Because his people have turned his house into a, to a den of thieves. And, and you know, Why a den of thieves? And I mean, what do thieves do in their den? Now understand, a den of thieves is a place where thieves hang out and hide after they've gone around stealing a bunch of stuff, right? A den of thieves is a place where thieves feel safe, right, and secure to enjoy all the stuff they have just stolen. And in Matthew 21, Jesus is quoting the prophet Jeremiah, who 600 years earlier rebuked God's people for the way they were living. And as Jesus overturns table after table, he's applying this verse to God's people in the temple, to religious leaders. On that Monday, he's saying, this is what you're doing. Jeremiah said this, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you. But I've been watching, declares the Lord. In other words, the people in Jeremiah's day and the, the people on that Monday morning as Jesus overturned the tables, they were basically living this way. Hey, it, it doesn't matter what I do during the week. It doesn't matter if I lie, steal, cheat, slander, gossip, gossip commit sexual morality. It doesn't matter as long as every once in a while I show up at the temple and shout some praises and I wave some prom, palm branches, right? She says, no, 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 no. That's not what it's about. It's not about that. You don't go out and live any way you want and then think you're okay to come into my house and worship me, right? That's what he means by you're turning into a den of thieves. Again, as night fell, Jesus went back to Beth and he spent the night on Tuesday morning, he goes back to the temple, and he preaches, and he teaches. He answers their questions about taxes <laughs> coming up soon, right? Resurrection of the dead. Hey, is the Christ really the son of David? And about which is the greatest commandment? Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and Pharisees, got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. All the law and all the prophets rest, hinge on these commandments. In fact, I, 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 would, I would add that the life that Jesus came to give you, you know, that John 10, 10 life, the life that is abundant, satisfying, full, and free, rests and hinges on them as well. Question, have you ever wondered, hey, God, God what's your will for my life? Right? God, God what, what do you want me to do? God, God, what do I do? What's your will? You know, this week I, I searched the following phrase on Amazon. God's will for your life. Over 4,000 books popped up immediately, right? Books with titles like How to Understand God's Will for Your Life. The Secret to Knowing God's Will for Your Life. Live Before You Die. Wake Up to God's Will for Your Life. Hearing from God. Five Steps to Know His Will for Your Life. Thousands of authors. Millions of pages written. Now, I'm not saying these books are wrong or bad or off the mark. I've not read any of them. However, what I am saying is that Jesus made it pretty clear on that Tuesday of his Passion Week, as to what God's will is for your life and for my life. Understand, I can say without any hesitation whatsoever that God's primary will for your life is for you to get better at loving God as you should, loving your neighbor as he intends, and loving yourself as he commands. God, God, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? What am I, how am I supposed to live? Jesus answers, love God, love your neighbor, and you love yourself. Maple Grove, those are the most important things. Those are to be the foundation and framework of your life. And that is why for 11 weeks, we've been talking about getting better at what Jesus matters most. And listen, listen, here's the deal. And this deal is so for real. If you miss out, if you fail to get better at these things, these three things, all the other things you accomplish in your life, the degrees on your wall, the square footage of your house, the money in your bank, I understand, no matter how loud or how long the world applauds you, in the end, in the eyes of Jesus, the one who was with God and was God and created everything, in the eyes of Jesus, the one who determines when a life is lived with significance, in the eyes of Jesus, all those things, all those accomplishments will not matter a hill of beans. Which is a crazy expression. I couldn't figure out what it really means, right? right? I mean, how big's the hill, right? Are they coffee beans, right? I don't know, right? It, bottom line is it's not going to matter, right? Paul puts it this way, right? If I speak in the tongues of men of angels but do not have love, I'm only a noise, Right? Just a noise. For the gift of prophecy can fathom all mysteries, all knowledge, have the faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, give over my body to the hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. I'm a noise. That's all. I'm a noise. I'm nothing. I, I, I gain nothing. Question. Who here, and, and raise your hands, believes that God wants you to get better at what Jesus says matters most. Anybody believe that, right? Okay. Is believing that, is knowing that enough, is waving our palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, bless it, is that, is that enough? No. Here's what, here's what I'm afraid. 
See, I'm afraid that even after 11 weeks of talking about this, that there's some people in this room that still have not really even made an effort to get better at loving God and loving their neighbors and loving themselves. They haven't even tempted to make that, that journey, right? The longest journey of all, right? You know, framed by that beautiful artwork that's soon to be in the Louvre in, uh, in Paris, France, right? My, my drawing right there. Historians will find that years later and say, who was this great artiste, right? right? But that's it, right? It's a journey from your head to your heart. Yeah, you know, you know, you're waving the palm branches, but are we, we living it? See, it's, it's not enough just to wave the palm branches. If when we leave this room, this parade route, we don't live our lives out loud for him. It's not enough to wave the palm branches. If we, like those who Jesus cleared out of the temple, those, those den of thieves, we think it's totally acceptable to live any way we want. As long as we, as long as we show up here every now and then and, and, and wave a palm branch or shout a amen or fill out an outline or preach a sermon. And listen, living for him means loving like him. Now, does anybody want to live like and love like Jesus? Raise your hands. Awesome. And I'm so with you, man. I mean, that is so intimidating, right? The thought of it. And it seems impossible. I mean, how in the world does someone like me and someone like you actually pull that off? I mean, when I look around this room, I don't know about you, but all I see is a bunch of messed up people. And listen, the truth is, on your own, you have about as much chance of living and loving like Jesus as you would jumping up and touching the moon. Or even jumping up and touching the ceiling, right? Because anybody think, forget about the 93,000 miles, how about the 35 to 40 feet? But the good news is that, A, we're not alone, and, B, God does not expect us to do it on our own. In John chapter 7, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Rivers of living water flowing in us and out from us. And Paul writes this, May the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow. Just as our love for you overflows. It, and here is the sheer power and beauty of, of, what, of what Jesus and, and what Paul are saying is that as you and I pour more and more of God's love for us into our lives and our love for God into our lives, some awesome and transforming things are going to happen. Just one more time for my, my, my little illustration here. You know, uh, th this cup here represents your life, right? And many times in our lives we feel empty and we feel dry. I know at least I do, right? And, and, and the water in this picture represents God's love. And, and the more you pour God's love into your life and your love for God in your life, your life begins to fill up. It begins to fill up. If you keep pouring in, right, that love begin, it begins to overflow, right? That love just begins, the love of God that is flowing into you begins to flow out from you. And, and that is God's intention for your life and for mine. 
And see, as that love flows wherever we're going, right? You know, and wherever we're going, right? Wherever I'm, wherever I'm going, God's love, right? I mean, all this wetness, all this patience and kindness and goodness and not easily anger. Everywhere I go, right? Oh, man, this forgiveness. No wrong. Everywhere I go, right? Wherever I am, God's love continues to pour out from me, and it just cannot help to get other people wet. See, the deal is, you know, the better we get at loving God and allowing God to, to love us, right, you know, it'll be an automatic response that we love our neighbors. See, the better you get at loving yourself, plunging the depths of God's love for you, right, pushing through insecurity, Going back in order to go forward, dealing with those issues, using 1 Corinthians 13 as a template to love yourself, and accepting God's approval of you, God approves of you as your validation. And the more you pour in your love for God, saying, yes, God, to your, yes, I accept your proposal. Uh, Yes, God, I want to enjoy your presence, God. I want to embrace your passion for the church, for the lost, for our relationship. And God, I will engage my personal, individual pursuit to know you. As we do that, the love for our neighbor will just flow out from us, wherever we are. And the way we show that diagram we've been showing is just right up here, right? Love where you are. And I got to tell you, let's keep getting better you know, and so that the people near us keep getting wetter, right? <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. That's getting better so other people get wetter, right? So, so our family and our friends, that, that we just soak them down with patience and kindness, right? And, and we soak them down with, we don't get easily angered. Uh, we, we soak them down with, hey, man, I just forgive, right? I'm not going to keep a record of wrongs. And we do that where we work and where we live, right? And we do that in our neighborhood, the concept of neighboring. Just a little quick video to remind you what we've been talking about the last two weeks, the concept of neighboring. What if, right? Imagine. Dave Runyon, in his book, The Art of Neighboring, says, Jesus is a genius. He's asked to pick out one commandment that is more important than all the others, and he shares something that would change the world if only every person who believes in Jesus would actually do it. There's four barriers we've got to overcome, Right? We've got to overcome the barrier of justifying why we're not doing it. Well, I'm not doing it because I'm loving other people or I don't like those people, whatever, right? Time, it's going to take time to do this, right? You're going to have to adjust your schedule, get something up. Fear, we're afraid of things and wrong motives. See, the goal of loving your neighbor is to be the best at what Jesus says matters most. We love our neighbors because we are Christians, not because we're trying to make them Christians, right? We don't love them to convert them. We love them because we are converted, now, this morning, I, I, I want to talk about, you know, in our time remaining, just, just five practices of neighboring. And, and just know that uh, this neighboring thing, it's not done, right? Uh, sometime very soon in, in the coming weeks, life groups will be studying the book, The Art of Neighboring, together, right? And if you're not in a life group, join one, at least for this series, so that you can get better at what Jesus said matters most. Um, but I, I, I want to hit just five practices, right, in neighboring. Uh, the first is obey. Uh, let's be a people who love our neighbor by having God's, hearts, God's heart towards them. Well, what, what is God's heart towards your neighbor? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So what is God's heart towards your actual neighbor? 
You know, maybe the one that embraced another religion, the one whose family seems so dysfunctional, the one who never weighs back at you, the one who you never really see, but you do see signs of life. There's a car in the driveway, and sometimes the lights come on at night. Uh, The single mom who seems to be overwhelmed and having a rough time, the widow who lives alone. What is God's heart towards them? God loves them. God sent his son to die for them. God wants to forgive them. God wants to adopt them. God wants to make them his sons and daughters. God loves them, and God wants you to love them too. God wants you to have his heart toward your actual neighbors. Question, if you had God's heart towards your neighbors, would anything change in your neighboring? Would you do things differently? Would you suddenly find the time and stop making excuses? Bottom line, God wants you to obey the great commandment. He wants you to love him. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. You see, we have to do more than wave prom branches and shout praises to Jesus. Let's be a people, right? Let's be a people who love our neighbors by having God's heart towards them. Say, God, how do you feel about them, God? I want to feel the same way. The next practice in neighboring is stay. Let's be a people who love our neighbors by getting to know them. Now, now stay is about choosing to be interested versus interesting. Uh, Jim Collins writes in his great book, Good to Great, he writes this. During my first year on the Stanford faculty in 1988, I sought out Professor John Gartner for guidance on how I might become a better teacher. Gartner, former Secretary of Health, Education, Welfare, stung me with a comment that changed my life. It occurs to me, Jim, that you spent too much time trying to be interesting. Why don't you invest more time being interested? You see, there are two types of people that walk into a room. Those who say, here I am. And those who, or think that, and those who say or think, there you are. You see, the core principle and the practice of staying is to be, is to work more or to be more concerned about being interested in people than worried about whether they see you as interesting. And the crazy thing is, the more interested you are in people, the more interested they're going to think you are to begin with. So you actually got what you wanted. <laughs> if you follow along with that, great. Bottom line, be interested. Staying is also about garage door up versus super cocooning. The phrase cocooning came around the 1980s used by marketing people to talk about, you know, different types of cocooning people were doing. There was home-based cocooning where people were like, hey, I'm going to watch movies at home rather than going to a theater, right? Uh, There was something they called wandering cocooning where people would, even though they left their homes, they stayed in their cocoons because they put their headphones on, right? Well, since the 1990s, cocooning has been on steroids. In fact, it's now called super cocooning. Understand people are home more and plugged in visually and audibly more than ever. And this super cocooning is making us less social. Mike Snyder, part of a media research group, writes, with all the information entertainment at arm's reach, why get out and meet up with a friend when you can chat on Facebook? Why go shopping for a book at Barnes & Nobles when you can reach through a, a virtual unlimited bookstore like Amazon and never leave your couch or cocoon? It appears that we're now living in an age when we expect more from technology than we do from relationships. Now, in contrast to to living a super cocoon life, 
The authors of the book, The Neighboring Church, suggest that we live with the garage door up approach. And I get it. I know that it's almost a, a virtual competitive sport to see how quickly we can drive into a garage, push the button, and get that garage door down and leap into our house without being seen by anybody in our neighborhood. And that's why living with our garage door up is countercultural. It's really a decision and an attitude towards life. And this outward, this outward act of having our garage door open it's not only a great symbol, also it will move our hearts to be more open to those in our neighborhood. Say, hey, I'm open. Next day is about learning names and histories and hopes and hurts. Again, it's not enough to fall in love with the idea of neighboring to simply wave our palm branches and shout while on the parade route. Instead, we need to love our actual neighbors when we leave this place. And how can we love our neighbors if we don't know them? And how will we ever know them if we don't know their names? I forgot to bring a magnet up here, but, you know, we have those magnets in the back still that you can put on your refrigerator. And uh, I think we have a picture. Could you hit that picture of the, of the magnet? Where There's your house, your eight closest neighbors. Yeah. You know, raise your hand if you've learned any new neighbor's names or tried to engage your neighbor in the last few weeks. Just raise your hand. Okay. All right. Just keep it going. See, learning names is a relational game changer, right? It moves you from hey, yo, to hey, Joe, right? Hey, man, to hey, Mike, hey, bro, to hey, Bob. And it it may seem like a little thing, but the fruit at the other end of this is huge. Now, getting to know their names, you may have already done that. It might be easy, but what about their hurts? What about their dreams? What about their hopes? Remember, our goal is to get a relationship that's much deeper than the wave or the handshake, and that'll take time and intentionality. The next practice of neighboring is pray. Let's be a people who love our neighbors by praying for them. And, and, and pray, it leads to a window being opened. Check this out. At the base of your head is a soft spot. And inside that soft spot is a bundle of nerves. The bundle of nerves is called the reticular activator, which acts as a filter. Understand, throughout each day, we are flooded with a tsunami of stimuli, Right? I mean, sights and sounds come at us from every direction. And if there was not something that would filter all that out, we would simply, like, explode. The good news is our brain is trained to open some windows for us, to let some things in, keep other things out. For example, when you buy a new car, right, (laughs) suddenly you see that car is, like, everywhere. You know, all that really happened is, guess what happened? A window was opened. In your brain, and now you see it. It isn't the fact that, wow, it's crazy. A hundred people bought the same car on the very same day I did. No, no, just a window was open. You see, God has designed us that way to filter the stimuli around us. And so when we begin to pray for our actual neighbors, what happens is a window becomes opened in our brain, and we begin to see things that we did not see before. Prayer opens a window. Uh, prayer is also about praying for ourselves, right? And pray, hey, God, don't just use me. Make me usable. God, God, help me to want to love my neighbor. And the reason prayer is so important is because God wants us to refocus how we see the people around us. To activate our particular activator, so to speak. So Paul writes this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer, right? Paul said, you know what? My window used to be closed to Jesus, and then I opened it, right? And see, we begin to pray for our neighbor, right? We no longer see them from a worldly point of view. We begin to see them differently. You see, God wants you to see your neighbor, your actual neighbor, the way that he sees them. You know that broken, banged up neighbor you're always judging? You know that single mom who you think is only reaping what she sowed? You know that family where they're, the ladies in the family always wear a headscarf when they leave their house? God says, those are my kids. <laughs> I love them. And I want you to love them too. And he says, and by the way, you did grace every bit, if not more than they did. Prayer means praying small, specific prayers. Sometimes our prayers are too vague. God, bless my neighbors. Or, or, or they're too big. God, I pray that today at 845, my atheistic, scientific neighbor who hates everybody will give his life to Jesus. Probably not happening. Right? Small prayers. Like... <clears throat> God, I'm fixing to take a walk. Help me to encounter one of my neighbors. Last night while governed us, I said, you know what? God, I'm going to go take a walk. Help me to my neighbors. Loop my neighborhood thinking, dang, didn't work. Almost to my house. And guess what? Jamal is out walking his two-year-old son. And his wife comes up. I can't remember her name. She wears a headscarf. And we're outside talking for 15 minutes, you know. And it worked. All I said, God, I'm taking a walk. Help me to meet a neighbor, right? And we met and we talked and we had a great conversation. I found out they've been watching us just as much as I've been watching, watching them. And they've been saying, hey, wow, your kids are really nice kids. I go, oh, they're just, you know, I'm just lucky. He go, no, no, maybe you just maybe raised them right. I go, okay, this is nice. You know, but I... Pray means being willing to be the answer to the prayer, right? You see, if you begin praying for your neighbor, right? <clears throat> Lord, I'm concerned about that neighbor and their marriage right now. Hey, be willing to be the answer, right? Yeah, when Jesus, remember when Jesus told the disciples, hey, you know what? There's like a lot of work to do and there's not a whole lot of workers. Would you guys like pray for workers? Hey, I guess you did a lot of the work. <laughs> they did because <laughs> they prayed, Right? And so be willing to be the answer, right? God, man, that, that house is always in the shambles, man. I wish that, that widow would hire a lawn service or something, you know, or get evicted. You know, <laughs> maybe God is saying, hey, why don't you maybe cut, cut, her, cut her grass for you, for her? Man, that neighbor is, is, you start praying, man, I hope my neighbor becomes friendlier. Maybe God wants you to become friendlier, right? Be willing to be the answer. Uh, the next act or practice of, of neighboring is pray. Excuse me, it's play. Let's be a people who love our neighbors by hanging out with them. Because we love you so much, Paul writes, we're delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. And one of the ways we can hang out with our neighbors is by inviting them into our homes, offering them hospitality. I think our homes are the most underutilized resource in the kingdom. I mean, let's stop and think for a minute. You know, we have maybe about you know, 20,000 square foot of building up here and counting the youth center, right? 
And there are maybe, just say, 120 different households represented that attend Maple Grove. And let's just say there are about maybe 2,000 each, square foot each. Some are more, a lot more, some are less. But that's like 240,000. We have, we have 240,000 square foot out there. We have 12,000 we have 12 times as much building out there as we do here. So what if all the kitchens and all the back porches and the grills and the garages and the tools and the guest bedrooms and bathrooms and kitchen tables, what if all of those became available to the kingdom? The Bible says always be eager to practice hospitality. That comes from two Greek words. Well, one Greek word, a compound word. Philoxenia. I looked it up. I actually said that right. I even got it in my little code here. Philoxenia. <laughs> right? Get past one syllable, I'm done. Right? Okay? Two words. Phileo means family or brotherly love. Xenos, which means stranger or, or uh, alien or foreigner. And so what hospitality means is literally you, you, you love a stranger. You love someone you don't know so much, maybe your actual neighbor that you just wave to, so much that they feel like they are part of your family. You invite them over for a meal. If you don't schedule, it's not going to happen. I've lived in my new neighborhood for almost two years. You know how many neighbors I invited over for a meal? Zero. That's That's terrible. That's embarrassing. That's convicting. That's just waving stinking palm branches in here and not living in out there. You know, and you guys ask me in a few months, a few weeks, you invite anybody over and then slap me if I haven't, all right? Or slap my dog. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I don't want to get hurt. You're know, fragile, delicate. All right? You know, but I'm just saying, you know, you know invite them to your home. In the meal, to watch a game, go to the movie, right? Hang out with them. Go to a game with them. You, you, you know, I, I, I don't play golf. I played one time, like, when I was, like, in the Navy, like, 30, who knows how many years ago. And, and, uh, but I was thinking about taking lessons. You know, I need to take lessons, you know, and I looked it up already. And we had a new neighbor move in. When I was doing my walk looking for a neighbor, their garage door was open. And you know what I saw sitting in the garage? Golf clubs. It's like, dude, I guess I need to do those lessons because when I talk to this dude, whoever he is, because I haven't met him yet, I can say, hey, you want to go golf with someone who I know you can beat? <laughs> it's probably going to be me because I've only done it like once and just took some lessons the other day. The practice of neighboring, obey. Let's be a people who love our neighbors by having God's hearts towards them. Stay. Let's be a people who love our neighbor by getting to know them. Pray. Let's be a people who love our neighbor by praying for them. Play. Let's be a people who love our neighbors by hanging out with them. And finally, say. Let's be a people who love our neighbors by sharing Christ with them. You, you see, say is about your story. You know, now stay, practice stay was about learning their story, Right? Learning their hurts and their hopes and their names and their goals and their dreams. Say is about where you begin to share your story, your hopes, your dreams, even your struggles. And sure, sharing our lives demands a significant amount of vulnerability and authenticity. But listen, I am convinced that authenticity and being real is what our shallow image-protecting, superficial culture is literally starving for crying out for. And listen, if any group of people should be real, 
right? It should be us as Jesus followers, right? We got nothing to hide because everything that's messed up about us has been already washed in his blood, right? All right, so be real about who you are. Share your story. Say is about sharing your faith because your faith is part of your life. And as a great American philosopher, Forrest Gump said, if you go to the zoo, always take food to feed the animals, even if there's signs there that say don't feed the animals because the animals didn't put the signs up there, right? And, and you know, we, like, we don't want to talk about faith, right? We, we're afraid it's going to pop up in a conversation because somewhere along the line, someone put a sign up, right? That says you're not supposed to talk about faith. But listen, everybody wants to talk about spiritual things, even if they don't know they're spiritual things. They want to talk about big deal stuff, like what really matters? How can I find meaning in my life? Why am I here? What comes after this? And finally, say is about talking about Jesus as a satisfied customer, not as a salesman. Consider the two different, these two different phrases. If you buy this car, you're going to love it. Wink, wink. I bought this car, and I love it. Okay. What is a better approach? Listen, your job and my job is not to sell Jesus. A guy named Carl Medeiros, in his book, Speaking of Jesus, The Art of Not Evangelism, says this. When we preach Christianity, we have to own it. When we preach Jesus, we don't have to own anything. Jesus owns us. We don't have to defend him. We don't have to explain him. All we do is point with our fingers like the blind man in the book of John and say, there is Jesus. All I know is that he touched me and where I was once blind, now I see. Maple Grove, though the series is over. I want you to know that we will continue to pursue getting better at what Jesus says matters most. And in fact, this pursuit is what will define and redefine our future as a people and as a church. And I think Jesus is totally okay with that. I just want to close so quickly with just two pictures. There's a door. See, because getting better what Jesus says matters most actually equals living the life God intends you to live. There's a life that God wants you to live, that he intends for you to live. It's a good life. Unexplainable joy. Peace beyond understanding, right? And it's just behind this door. But it seems so many times shut to us, right? We're like, man, how am I ever going to live that life? I want it. Well, here's the deal. Yeah, beyond the door is that life, and on that door are three hinges. And I am totally convinced. Let's see them hinges. Bring on the hinges. There you go. Boom. Okay. <laughs> I am, t- oh, gosh, I am so convinced. And God keeps trying to get, well, no, I'm not so convinced, right? I want to be so convinced. Because every time I quiet time, I keep hearing God telling me, yo, dude, chill out. Quit worrying about stupid stuff you can't control. And start worrying about what you can't control and just get better at what I said matters most. Just get better at loving me, Steve. Just get better at loving yourself and get better at loving your neighbor. That's all you got to worry about, okay? And, and let me tell you, you know, if, 
If you want the life you're created to live, just get better, not perfect. Get better at what Jesus said matters most. Guys, would you stand and let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for moving into our neighborhood. And God, we want to be a people who does not simply wave palm branches and shout Hosanna along a parade route and then leave this place and live any way we, we feel like it. Oh, we want to be a people who live for you. We want to get better at what you said matters most. And so, God, I pray that you help us do that. God, I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that they would realize, that I would realize, that the life we want is within reach if we would only do what you said matters most. In Jesus' name, amen.